Okay, so let's stand together. We're going to read uh, our text today, which is Hebrews 10, 23 <clears throat> through 39. going to cheat back just a few verses uh, from where Pastor Eric preached last week. I'm going to pick up a few verses for context, and then we'll jump into uh, this passage. So 10, 23 through 39, you follow along as I read. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised." For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. Jumping quickly into our text, I want to draw attention to the very first verses we read, because they're going to provide for us a frame for what we're going to do uh, in the sermon this morning. The author of Hebrews is writing to the, to the church here, this fledgling church, this fledgling Christian community, and he exhorts them, as he's been doing throughout, to hold fast the confession of their hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, he says in verse 23. And then he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds not neglecting meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the author of Hebrews is writing to these struggling Christians who frankly are on the verge of potential apostasy, of abandoning Christ altogether, fleeing away from the hope that's been offered in Christ and going back to their old way of life in Judaism. And the author exhorts them to hold fast to hold fast and not abandon their hope. And then he says, encourage one another, exhort one another. And all the more as you see that final day, that, that day when Christ returns drawing near, exhort one another. And then the author goes into exhortation. I mean, he's been doing exhortation all the way through, but, but he begins to exhort them himself. So I want to use the sermon. I'm, I'm adjusting it a little bit from the first service, which is always a bit dangerous, frankly, when you try to call audibles in your manuscripted sermon, but I'm doing it anyway. Uh, so the author is doing two things here, I think. He's exhorting, the con he's exhorting his fledgling congregation. He's giving, he's giving them sort of 
truths that will enable them to persevere in the faith. He's helping them. He's doing the very thing he's asking them to do to each other. He's exhorting them. But I think he's also doing another thing. He's also enabling them to see how they should exhort one another. Right, so the author is exhorting them to hang out in the faith, to stay in the faith, but he's also showing them what it means to exhort each other to stay in the faith. Because the author, who's writing from a distant city, isn't there every day to exhort them. He's exhorting them to exhort each other. And so I want to do two things with this sermon. One is I want to exhort those who are struggling in their faith, as we've been doing all throughout the sermon series in Hebrews. But I also want to draw attention to the way that the author himself exhorts those to stay in the faith. Because all of us here are burdened with the responsibility to exhort one another. It's not just my job as your pastor. It's not just the job of the elders. But we're all called upon to exhort one another. So you have people in your lives, if you're, perhaps you're not on the point of apostasy, but you have people in your lives who are perhaps struggling in their faith or one day may struggle in their faith, right? How should you exhort them? The author gives us a model of exhortation. So we're going to move through this text looking at the author exhorting the uh, readers of Hebrews and also looking at it as a model for how we are to exhort others. <clears throat> to move through this text, there are a number of things, I think, that kind of stand out that are a bit arresting, perhaps, per particularly depending on where you come from. Uh, in your uh, Christian background, you might have certain doctrinal assumptions that make this text more challenging than other texts uh, that we've read. So I want to move through this text highlighting uh, some particular aspects that can lead to confusion, try to clarify those, and then draw out the application that I think comes from those passages. All right, so let's start in verse 26. The author says, he's exhorted them to kind of hold to their hope and not give up meeting together and exhort one another. And then he says in verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So if you have any kind of spiritual sensitivity, any commitment to Jesus, you care about his word, when you see something like this, sinning deliberately, that should raise your interest. Sinning deliberately, obviously, is a bad thing. We don't want to do it. But what exactly does it mean to sin deliberately? Because isn't there some sense, really, if we're all honest with ourselves, that we all sin deliberately? Like, we don't just sin and be like, actually, I didn't mean to do that. I don't know how that happened. I was just going down one way, and the next thing I know, this sin happened. Right? We choose sin. So what is the author saying here, this sinning deliberately? We can think of sinning deliberately as kind of any habitual sin that we engage in. I don't think that's quite right, but that can be how we think of it, right? Any besetting sin that we have. So perhaps we think of ourselves as the parent that has short fuse and we yell at our kids. We, we know that we shouldn't. We feel bad when we do but we can't control our temper. Or perhaps you're the person that's struggling with pornography. You know that you shouldn't. You've been trying to stop, but you can't seem to stop, and you keep slipping up. Perhaps you're the student at school who's in a social group where there's a lot of gossip going on, and you know you shouldn't partake in the gossip and contribute to the gossip, and you vow that you're not going to keep, keep getting pulled into the drama, but you find that you do, and you can't 
seem to stop. And we think, we can think of sinning deliberately or deliberately sinning as any sin that we know we shouldn't do but keep doing. But I don't think that's what the author has in mind. When we consider the overall context of Hebrews leading up through chapter 10 to this point, as well as the immediate context of our passage, I think the sinning deliberately, the sin that the author has in mind specifically is the sin of apostasy. You see here back in the beginning of our passage, he's just said, let us consider, verse 24, how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing. What is he concerned about there? Not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing. For if we go on sinning deliberately, well, some of these Christians that the author is writing to had apparently abandoned meeting together with the Christian community. They no longer gathered together on the Lord's Day. Well, that wasn't because their kids had softball games on Sundays. Right? The reason that they were not gathering together on the Lord's Day with the fellow Christians is because things, frankly, were getting pretty hot. They were getting pretty dicey for them. The author says in verse 32, he he, he talks about the former days. He says, when you were enlightened, when you endured hard struggle and sufferings. He talks about them being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. He talks about them being partners with those who were so treated. He talks about them having compassion on those who had gone into prison. So some of them apparently had been thrown into prison. They had had, even, he goes on to say, had had their property plundered. So things were not going particularly easy for these Christians. They had left behind the safety of their Jewish religion. And now they were kind of out there adrift, it's felt like, exposed to the, to the Roman authorities, perhaps to the Jewish authorities. We're not quite sure who's persecuting them, probably both, right? And so things had gotten difficult for them. And so they had neglected, some of them were neglecting to meet together. Because how do you know who the Christians are? You find out who gathers together on the Lord's Day with the Christians. That's who the Christians are. And so they had pulled back and they had stopped meeting together because the cost was becoming too much for them. They were distancing themselves from the Christian community, the Christian communities, because they didn't want to pay the price. These are folks in their deliberate sinning who had not just fallen down but we're in danger of falling away. The author of Hebrews isn't overly concerned throughout the book of Hebrews with the habitual sins that all of us struggle with. He's concerned with one specific sin, one major sin, the sin of apostasy, the sin of willfully rejecting Jesus as our hope of salvation. That's the sin that he's concerned about. And he's saying if we go on sinning deliberately, and so he's talking about if we persist in apostasy, these folks that have pulled back from meeting with the Christian community, if these folks continue to abandon the faith to save their own skin, if they count this life more important than the life to come, if they functionally with their lives reject Christ, then we get to our second thing we need to observe in this text, in this text. Look at the consequence. If we sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And he goes on to talk about the fearful expectation of judgment that awaits those who have 
apostatized or have rejected Christ. So what is this, what is this no longer any sacrifice for sins referred to? Right, the context of Hebrews 10, if you remember from the last couple of weeks, if you were here in Pastor Eric's sermon, the context of Hebrews 10, the whole point of what precedes this, uh, in this chapter is the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice to the old Levitical uh, uh, Mosaic sacrifices that were provided for under the law. So every priest, every Levite priest who was called upon to offer sacrifices for the nation of Israel and for the Israelites the author tells us in verse 11 of chapter 10, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So the, the author reminds his readers that the Levitical sacrifices were, these animal sacrifices were offered over and over and over and over again by the Levitical priests. And they were offered over and over and over again because they actually could never solve the problem of sin. The sacrifice of a goat or a bull or a dove or a lamb, whatever was offered, could just cover over but could not really address the problem of sin. But then Christ comes, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus comes and in one blow, in one single sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself by his own blood, he has made sufficient sacrifice for sin for all time. So that if you come into and lay hold of the sacrifice that Jesus offers, then you don't need to continually offer sacrifices over and over and over again. And Jesus doesn't need to offer himself over and over and over again because one time deals with sin. So the author is telling us here that the only real and effective sacrifice is the one that Jesus provides. All of which is to say, if you walk away from Jesus, and this should be a sobering thing for us, if you walk away from Jesus, you are walking away from the only sacrifice that can save you. The old sacrifices never really worked. The old sacrifices could not save you. And now you're rejecting the one sacrifice that, you, that could save you, the sacrifice of Jesus. If you reject the old sacrifices, which never really could save you, and you reject the new sacrifice of Jesus, which can save you, there no longer remains, the author says, a sacrifice for sins. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. <clears throat> Thinking about a way to illustrate this, I remembered the... Uh, the sinking of the Titanic, which all of us are familiar with. The Titanic sank in 1912. It was 400 miles off the coast of Newfoundland, way out in the North Atlantic in the Arctic waters, and it struck an iceberg uh, there. And the lifeboats, turns out, I was doing some reading about this, uh, the lifeboats were never intended to be the rescue boats of the Titanic. So what the lifeboats were intended for was if perchance the Titanic encountered some problem, it was meant to never sink, it was the unsinkable ship, but if it encountered some problem, then uh, some rescue ship would come to the Titanic and they would ferry people in the lifeboats from the Titanic over to the rescue ship. So the lifeboats were meant to be ferry ships to take you from 
the sinking or the, uh, from the sinking Titanic over to the rescue ships. So getting into the, in the situation of that Titanic, getting into the, the rest, the, into the lifeboats was only sort of useful for those who made it out of the Titanic. The lifeboats could get you free of the sinking ship, but you still needed to be rescued because you were stranded out in the North Atlantic, 400 miles from the nearest land. Well, it turns out that the RMS Carpathia uh, showed up, answered the distress call, rescued the folks that were stranded in the lifeboats, brought them onto the Carpathia, and then took them to the safety of the New York Harbor. But now imagine this scenario. Imagine that you were a passenger on the Titanic. It hit the iceberg. You did somehow make it onto one of the lifeboats. And there you are waiting for rescue, and you watch the Titanic sink beneath the waters, and it's gone. And then a couple hours later, the Carpathia shows up. And so the Carpathia comes by uh, your little lifeboat, and you get out of the lifeboat, you're on the Carpathia. But as you're on the Carpathia, you think to yourself, you know, the last time I was on a big ocean-going vessel, it sank. And so I'm just not certain that this boat really is the real deal. So you crawl off the Carpathia and you get back on the lifeboat. And so the captain of the Carpathia or whoever are yelling at you to come back up into the Carpathia, but you don't trust the Carpathia or you're uncertain, you have doubts, whatever the case may be, and you insist upon staying in the lifeboat and finally the Carpathia leaves, leaving you by yourself in the lifeboat 400 miles off the coast of Newfoundland in the North Atlantic. You might as well have just gone down with the Titanic for all the good that that lifeboat is going to do you. The lifeboat never was intended to be an end in and of itself. It was never meant to be the rescue ship. It was meant to just take you to the rescue ship. But once on the rescue ship, if you reject the rescue ship and just go back, as it were, to the lifeboat, well, you're never going to find the salvation you're looking for. When the Titanic sank, the real source of deliverance was the rescue ship, not the lifeboats. In the same way, the Levitical sacrifices, the Levitical sacrifices were a temporary measure meant to ferry people from the sinking ship of this world to the true eternal sacrifice of Jesus. The Levit Levitical sacrifices could not save. They were never intended to save. They could only hold people above the waterline of sin as they waited for the salvation that Jesus brought. So here's what I think the author is saying. Going back to the Levitical priesthood is as vain as fleeing the permanent safety of the rescue ship for the temporary safety of the lifeboat. If you deliberately turn your back on Jesus and return to your old sacrifices, back to your old way of life, you are rejecting the one sacrifice that can really save you. There would no longer be for you a sacrifice for sin, but only, the author says, a fearful expectation of the vengeance that will fall on the enemies of God. All right. <clears throat> some of us, some of you, are needing to hear that word this morning. Because the, you're not, the deliberate sin that the author of Hebrews is talking about is the sin that perhaps is hovering on your horizon. The author isn't talking about the everyday struggles that we all have with sin, the habitual sins that we're struggling to overcome and by God's grace make progress in from day to day. 
that we will have throughout our whole internal life, our whole, our whole uh, life here in this world. Right? But he's talking about this sin of willfully turning our back on Jesus. Going back to whatever our past is. For the author, thinking of the readers here, the reader's uh, past was to go back to the old Jewish ways that were safer than the, this new Christian way. Right? But you have your own things that you would go back to. And the author wants to make it as clear as possible. And we need to listen to it as clear as possible. That if we deliberately turn our back on Jesus and we go to some other source of salvation, there no longer remains for us a sacrifice for sins. That old way of life that we would go back to, that was never meant to save and it cannot save. And the one thing that we would find salvation through Jesus Christ, we have set aside. And we need to let the full weight of this passage rest upon us before we too quickly start trying to figure out ways around it. Because some of us, I know, if you grew up in a place like Calvary, uh, we hold to and we affirm a doctrine of eternal security. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But don't let your doctrine of eternal security, which I affirm, mitigate the force and the weight of this passage. Let it rest upon you and be assured that if you reject Christ willfully and you turn away from him and you stay willfully rejecting Christ, there is nothing that you should expect but the fearful judgment and fury of fire that consumes the adversaries of God. I do a fair amount of counseling uh, as a pastor, and a number of years ago, uh, I had a couple come to me, actually had the husband come to me first. We'll call them uh, Tom and Angie, These aren't their real names, but uh, they don't no longer attend uh, Calvary. They've since moved out of the area, but Tom and, An uh, and Angie had gone uh, to, um, to Moody, studied there, and gotten married. They had uh, a kid together, and things started out very well for them. But over time, Angie had begun to stray in, in her faith, and that led to strain in her marriage, and she was staying out late at night, not letting Tom know where she was, and she had gotten involved with a number of guys. And by the time Tom came to me, he was concerned because Angie was, 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 had moved into serial adultery, and it was, it was just a very bad situation. And he was committed to the marriage. He didn't want to give up on her, but he just didn't know what to do. And so... And I didn't exactly know what to do either, but I agreed to meet uh, with them. And I met and sat and talked with Angie. And, and, and I was surprised at what she said. She says, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I, I believe all the truths of, of the scriptures and salvation, the gospel that I learned. But, but my life is so miserable. My marriage is so miserable. I'm so miserable even when I'm out with these other guys at the bars, that makes me miserable. My, I just, I just want to die, she said. I'm so miserable. And she said, and I said, well, what, so what's, your, what's your plan here then? Because you know, I knew she wasn't finding satisfaction with these guys she was running around with. I said, what's your plan? And she said, well, she said, I, I, I think I'm just going to go all in and indulge the flesh because it's, it's killing me. And I'm just going to let it kill me. And then I'll go to heaven and I'll be at peace with God. And I said, well, I said, Angie, listen, I said, I don't know, don't know that that's a good plan. 
Because nowhere you're going to find in Scripture that indulging the flesh is the pathway into the presence of God. The, the indulging of the flesh is, it leads to death. The Scripture is very clear on that. And so, so you shouldn't expect that somehow you can continue down willfully a life of sin, abandoning Christ, rejecting Christ, rejecting His call upon your life, and then enter into God's presence at the end. So she went on and uh, continued uh, uh, meeting with uh, her husband and some other counselors, and I, the story ended very well, and she eventually came back to a place of, of uh, recognition and, and uh, reconciled with her husband, left behind uh, the life that she had been leading. And I met with them a number of months after things had been straightened out, and, and I, said, uh, I said, oh, how's it going? You know, what's happened? And she said, she said, the decisive turnaround thing was when you told me I might go to hell if I did not stop my apostasy. And she didn't respond in that way when I had said it to her. I wasn't sure how she was responding, frankly. And that wasn't the only thing that kind of brought her out of that. She had a lot of things in her past she had to work through. There's a lot of counseling she had to go through. But that brought her up short. And what I would say to you and what I would say that you say to others is that if someone is willfully rejecting Christ as a premeditated plan for their life, you should not hesitate to speak about the ultimate consequences of that decision. I'm not talking about someone that's struggling with sin, someone who's having a hard time with sin, someone who's really trying to make the best of it and they fall and then they come back. And that. I'm not saying threaten hell for that. I'm talking about when someone says, I'm done with Jesus, it's too hard. I don't want to pay the price, or I'm going to go a better way. I think there's some other way I could find better help or more hope, right? When someone's in that position, we need to do what the author of Hebrews does for those first early Christians. He doesn't give them a free pass. He doesn't say, well, that would be bad if you apostatize, but after all, you've got heaven. Right. He, he warns them of the consequences of apostasy, and we need to not be afraid to warn people of the consequences of apostasy, and we need to be willing to hear it in our own lives if we are in that place or position. Now, some of you are thinking at this point in the sermon, um, I wish Pastor Gerald had not come back, but maybe, <laughs> maybe you're not thinking that. Um, <clears throat> you might be thinking... Uh, you might be thinking this. You might be thinking, I don't get the point. I mean, I, I agree with the need for perseverance, and I affirm that, but I don't get the point of this warning, or really any of the warnings in Hebrews, because I didn't think it was possible for a true believer to reject Christ and thus be cut off from the benefits of his sacrifice. Why warn people about something that can't really happen? All right, so let me see if I can make a sense of this in, in in a previous sermon, back in chapter 3, I argued that the doctrine of our eternal security, being eternally secure in Christ, needs to be understood in tandem with the doctrine of perseverance. In other words, those who are eternally secure in Christ are also those who persevere to the end in faith. You can't separate these two doctrines, right? So to, to persevere in the end means to hold to, hold to Christ, cling to Christ. Doesn't mean you hold to him perfectly, right? Doesn't mean you hold to him without sin. Doesn't mean you hold to him without falling down. But it means you hold to him in the end, ultimately. Those whom God has elected to salvation 
All those whom he elects for salvation, he enables to persevere in the faith. Salvation is by God's grace from first to last. He finishes what he starts. So Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. All right, but that still leaves unanswered the question of why the Bible is full of warning passages threatening hellfire to Christians if they fall away. If Christians are eternally secure. So as a church, we affirm the eternal security of the Christian. I believe it and I affirm it as your pastor. I think the author of Hebrews affirms it. And yet he's warning his readers about the dangers of apostasy and falling away. Why warn someone about something that you don't think is possible to happen? Now, some might say, here's the way that this gets handled, well, he's not warning the real Christians. He's, he's, he's warning the fake Christians. He's warning the pretenders and the fence-sitters. And since he can't tell the difference between real and fake just by looking, he just spreads his warning over everybody, just warns the whole group. But his warning doesn't really apply to Christians because, after all, we know Christians can't really apostatize. Now, some passages, I think, could be interpreted like that. I'm not sure that's the best way to interpret uh, passages like this. I don't think this passage is quite so easy because look in verse 29 about who he has in mind. Who is he giving this warning to? Verse 29. He clarifies who he has in mind. He says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? So he's warning those who have been sanctified by the blood of Christ's covenant. That's who, he, that's who he's sending the warning to. Right? So do we have a category for warning those who are in the covenant about the dangers of apostasy. Many of us don't, but the author of Hebrews seems to have a category for this. And then he goes on to say in verse 39, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. We're not those who apostatize. We are those who have faith and preserve our souls. So he's confident, actually, that they're going to persevere. He's confident that they're not going to apostatize. So if he's confident they're not going to apostatize, why is he warning them about the dangers of apostasy? Why warn Christians whom we believe to be genuine about the dangers of apostasy if you are already confident that they're not going to apostatize? Okay, so here's my thesis. This isn't my thesis alone. I um, got this in part from a scholar named uh, Tom, Thomas Schreiner. And if you're interested in reading more about the, kind of this perspective, you can look at his book, Thomas Schreiner's. The name of the book is The Race Set Before Us. And here's his thesis, which I think is right. The warning passages, listen to this, are the means by which God keeps us from apostasy. God keeps us from apostasy by warning us what would happen if we apostatize. The warnings are for real Christians. And he keeps us from apostasy infallibly. He keeps all of his children from apostasy through the warnings that he gives us. So imagine that you're walking down a trail in the woods and you speak English, you read English, and you see a sign that says danger quicksand with an arrow pointing down next 20 feet. 
So because you speak English and you read English, when you get to that sign, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to take some evasive action around that section of the trail. Probably you're going to go 30 feet, even though it said go 20, because you just don't want to like, be wrong about that, right? So because you can read, and because it's in your language, you are saved from the quicksand. But you're saved from the quicksand by the warning. Because if you were walking down that trail and there was no sign warning you about the danger of quicksand, you'd keep walking down the trail and you'd fall into the quicksand and you would die in the quicksand. As long as the hiker can read the language of the warning sign, he's saved from the quicksand. And he is saved from the quicksand because of the sign. That's the important point. In the same way, the warning passages of the Bible are the very means that God uses that enable us to avoid the danger of apostasy. We are saved from apostasy not because God sprinkles pixie dust over us and takes away our capacity to apostatize, so it kind of makes it impossible, like, like the hiker going down the trail can't fall into quicksand. He can just walk on quicksand. So God doesn't do that with us, right? He warns us about the dangers of apostasy. He makes the danger of apostasy real to us, and then we take evasive action, and we don't actually apostatize. When we surrender our lives to God in Christ, he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in turn, gives us the ability to, as it were, read and understand the warning signs that God has laid out so clearly in his word. This isn't the only place that we encounter a warning passage. We've already seen a number of warning passages throughout Hebrews. We're going to see two more before we're done. And the author knows that his readers need to be warned about the dangers of apostasy, even though he is at the same time confident that they will not fall prey to the consequences of apostasy because they will not apostatize. He's confident that God has laid hold of them, given them the Holy Spirit, opened up their eyes to see, to read the signs, to heed the warnings, and to take evasive action and not fall prey to apostasy. So the application for this section, I would say, is this. As we are thinking about how we're going to admonish and encourage one another, that means at times we will have to lay the consequences of apostasy in a very clear way before people. doesn't mean we have to do it in a heavy-handed way or in a graceless way or in a judgmental or condemning way, but we do have to make clear that apostasy is a real danger, not just a real danger for pretenders, but a real danger for all of us. Like, we as a congregation need to recognize that the danger of apostasy waits for all of us, but then we need to have confidence that the Spirit of God inside of us has given us the capacity to heed these warnings and to walk the path of faithfulness. And also, as we are warning about the dangers of apostasy, as the author does here in this passage, notice how he ends it. And I think this is a very important point. Notice how he ends it. He ends it by saying, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who have faith and preserve their souls. Right? So he doesn't just end by saying, you know, beware of the dangers of apostasy, beware of the dangers of apostasy. He says that, but then he says, but listen, remember, remember the old days, right? Verse 32, remember the former days after you were enlightened how you endured struggles, you endured hardship. Like, you've, you've been in a hard spot before. Like, you've faced difficulties before. 
God has given you strength. Hang on to your strength because we're the kind of people that persevere to the saving of the soul. He doesn't approach them with doubt. He approaches them with confidence even as he warns them. All right. I want to finish out with one last point of application. I had other points of application, but you're going to get this one. This is the one I think that perhaps is the, maybe the most important. Take your time. Bless you. Um, <clears throat> I think how the author ends his admonition and exhortation is instructive for all of us. Look what he says here in verse 37. He says, For yet for a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. He's going to gain his life by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. I want to end on this word of optimism that the author has in this uh, admonishing passage. Because when he is warning the readers, all throughout the letter of Hebrews, you can go back and look at it, but when he's warning his readers about the dangers of apostasy, he always comes back to assuring them that he expects and hopes for and is confident of better things for them. Look back in uh, chapter 6. This is another significant warning passage. Verse 9. All the way through the end of 5 and then all the way through 6, he's been warning them kind of just as severely as he's been warning them here in chapter 10 that we've been looking at. He talks about worthless ground being cursed and in the end being burned. He says that's like people who don't produce fruit. But then look what he says in 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in our case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. It says the same thing here in chapter 10, verse 39. Right? He's confident that even though he's been warning them about the dangers, he's confident they're going to persevere. When we are struggling with our faith, it's likely because we're doubting. We're doubting the truth of God's promise or we're doubting our own resolve and ability to persevere, or both. I think in the case of the, uh, the readers of this epistle here in Hebrews, I don't know that they, had, they were not doubting the legitimacy of who Jesus was, but I think they were beginning to doubt whether they had it in them to, to persevere and like endure the difficulty of that decision that they had made. We're doubting the truth of God's promise, or we're doubting our own ability to persevere. We're doubting both. And when we're plagued by self-doubt, that's precisely when we need someone to believe in us and for us. That's when we need someone to come alongside of us, to believe in us and for us. I work out a couple days a week. I know it's not a surprise uh, looking at me <laughs> to any of you. But um, imagine, I mean, have you ever seen like these these YouTube videos where the, the weightlifter is going for the new max rep, right? So imagine I was going for the new max rep and my workout buddies were like, uh, yeah, you're not going to get that. No, <laughs> not possible. You've been looking pretty weak lately, uh, not confident that you were going to get that. Oh, let me spot. Let's get two spotters on either side because you're surely not going to make it, right? Right, like that would not be inspiring 
to me, right? But when you watch these YouTube videos of the guy, he's going for his new Max, you know, all of his gym buddies gather around him and they're, they're pumping him up and they're telling him he can do it and, and he gets down and he, he feeds off of the enthusiasm of the people around him. And so whatever doubt he has is, is, is set aside so that he can draw upon the faith of those that are with him. There are people that are looking for your help and my help in the faith because they're doubting, because they're going through a hard time, because they're just right on the edge, 49%, 50%, 51%. It goes back and forth, back and forth. They're not sure that they can stick it out. They're not sure that they can make it. And it's in places like that that they not only need to be warned, yes, they need to be warned, not only they need to be reminded of their successes, as the author does in verse 32, but they also need to know, if you are a principal person in their life, they also need to know that you believe in them. And if you just heap your doubt upon their doubt, that may be all that is needed to snuff out the smoldering wick. It says of Jesus that when he comes, the, the smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Right? That, that our faith can get down to just that smoldering wick. Right? And God has sent Jesus, and Jesus doesn't snuff it out. Right? But Jesus comes and he blows on it gently, and he says, you can do it. Like, I'm with you. I've given you my spirit. That the one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And he begins to speak words of confidence and faith into our lives. Ultimately, not confidence in who we are, as though we have any resources in ourselves to persevere in our own strength, but confidence because, because Christ is with us and in us, and he who began the good work will carry it on to completion, right? So it is the confidence that comes not through our own sort of, our own efforts, but the confidence that comes through, the, through Jesus being present with us. Part of our job is to believe for our brothers and sisters when their faith is wavering, all of us know what it is to have a parent or a teacher or a pastor or a spouse believe in us. It's empowering and it's life-giving. This isn't a surefire thing. It's not 100% that if all the buddies in your gym come around and tell you you can do it, that you're going to bench 100 pounds more than you really can. It doesn't quite work that way, right? So it's not a surefire thing, right? And there can be people that we are believing the best in for and it still doesn't just turn out the way that we we're hoping and believing for them. But it is true that faith tends to breed faith, and doubt tends to breed doubt. And as we look to exhort one another, and we encounter at times in each of our lives places where we're teetering on the edge, where we're not sure we can continue on in the faith, that's when we need to come alongside of each other and speak words of confidence and faith and optimism that they can do it that they can stick it out and they can persevere. So let's lay aside our fear and our doubt and let's believe the best for each other. That doesn't mean that we stop warning if necessary, but it does mean that we choose to warn and admonish each other from a posture of confidence and optimism, just as the author of Hebrews is doing here. We're going to close uh, singing The Lion and the Lamb. It's a song we've sung before and trying to think about a good song for closing out this sermon and, and uh, 
Pastor Josh and I picked this song together earlier in the week. It's a song about the Lord's return and how he comes and he brings his reward with him. And so as we sing this song, let's be hearkened in the way that the author in verse 35 says, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance so that you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Jesus is what is promised to us. He is our great hope. He is our confidence. Let's hang, to, hang on to him when we're struggling, and then let's point to him when we encounter others who are struggling. Amen? God, thank you for giving us Jesus, who is our source of comfort and hope in the midst of our struggles. Pray for those that are here today, Lord, who perhaps they're in that doorway of apostasy. They're just struggling. They don't know if they can make it. I pray that you would give them grace, bring a word of encouragement to their heart, warn them as necessary, but give them the confidence they need to keep persevering and pressing forward. And Lord, I pray you would give us all uh, those words to say of encouragement and courage to people's lives as we have opportunity. And help us, Lord, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to hold on to the confidence of our hope in him, to be willing to pay whatever price is necessary to, to hang on to and to lay hold of Christ in that last day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.